Right, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I'm Sally Mapstone. I'm chair of the English Faculty Board, and it's my pleasure to introduce this year's News International Visiting Professor of Broadcast Media Series, given by Professor Stephen Garrett, the Executive Chairman of Kudos Film and Television Limited. The News International Visiting Professor of Broadcast Media Lectures are funded through the generous benefaction which News International made to the English faculty in 1991, a benefaction which continues to enrich the faculty's range of cultural reference. The visiting professorship was the brainchild of one of my predecessors as faculty board chair, Vincent Gillespie, and the only reason Vincent isn't here tonight is a very good reason, which is that he's currently on leave in California. And Vincent established the lecture series in 1997 under the aegis of the English Faculty Board. This term's lectures from Stephen Garrett mark the 12th year of this distinguished series. The series has brought some of broadcasting's most talented practitioners to Oxford to share their insight and experience in ways that are hugely valuable to the university and beyond it. We know that these lectures are particularly valued and appreciated by our undergraduate and graduate students, many of whom go on to enjoy highly successful careers in communication and the media. So we again register our appreciation of the possibilities that the generosity of News International has created. The professorship is associated with a visiting fellowship at Green Templeton College and for the past few years has also regularly been hosted at St Anne's College and the faculty would like to express its appreciation to these partner colleges for their continued involvement with the chair. Um, let me remind you that the first two of Professor Garrett's lectures are given here in St Anne's and the second two in fourth and fifth weeks in Green Templeton. Stephen Garrett read jurisprudence at Merton College during um, what I can personally tend to testify was a vintage period in the 1970s. He was also the editor of ISIS at that time, clearly signalling a likely media career, though in fact he'd got his first media break much earlier than this, having featured as an extra age six in a Milky Bar Kid commercial. <laughs> After university, his early media career was as a researcher, then as a freelance producer, director at Granada, Tynetees, and the BBC. He was commissioning editor for youth programmes at Channel 4 from 1987 to 1992. At Channel 4, Stephen gave a first break to a wide range of writers and directors, including such now-established talents as the Full Monty director, Peter Catanio, and its writer, Simon Beaufoy. Responsible for over 100 hours of broadcasting a year, Stephen was involved in everything from the youth drama Teenage Health Freak to the groundbreaking late-night Love It or Loathe It series The Word. Stephen left Channel 4 to co-found Kudos, which immediately distinguished itself with a host of innovative, unusual, and provocative programming, including Rory Bremner's first BAFTA award-winning show for Channel 4, the serio-comic Religious Quest series Desperately Seeking Something, and the controversial poverty-themed game show Come On Down and It Out. Stephen's first notable drama success with Kudos was the Simon Beaufoy-penned, critically-hailed feature film Among Giants, which Stephen produced. Since then, Stephen's list of producing credits has been equally impressive, from the Channel 4 drama Psychos, the movie Pure, via the international Emmy Award-winning The Magician's House. 
After bringing in Jane Featherstone as a partner in the business to invigorate Kudos' TV drama arm, the company has galvanised British television with the popular acclaimed show Spooks, based on Stephen's original idea and the first series of which he executive produced, Hustle, Life on Mars, Moving Wallpaper, and most recently ITV's current hit, Law and Order UK, along with the return to BBC One of the hit series Ashes to Ashes and the recently critically acclaimed Occupation. In 2004, Stephen invited former Film 4 head Paul Webster to join himself and Jane Featherstone as a partner in an exciting new standalone filmmaking entity. Kudos Pictures now has David Cronenberg's Eastern Promises and Bharat Naluri's Miss Pettigrew Lives for a Day under its belt. Disney's first natural history feature documentary, Crimson Wing, follows close behind. A few months ago, Kudos Pictures formed a joint venture with the Los Angeles-based New Regency to develop and produce movies on a more global canvas. At the end of 2006, Stephen Garrett and Jane Featherstone sold Kudos to Elizabeth Murdoch's Shine Group. Outside Kudos, Stephen has recently joined the British Screen Advisory Council and was elected to the BAFTA Council in July 2008. We're really delighted that he's going to share some of the insights that have come out of his amazingly creative career in television, drama and film. Um, If time permits, which I hope it will, Stephen's kindly agreed to take some questions after today's lecture. And after that, there'll be a reception in the Ruth Deach building to which everybody's warmly invited. So now may I ask you to welcome Stephen Garrett, whose first lecture is entitled How to Grow a Creative Business According to the Laws of Chance. Uh, thank you, Sally, for those kind words. I'd forgotten quite deliberately quite a lot of that. Um, I'm glad you were able to remind me and many others about all those things I'd sought to suppress. Uh, those of you who grew up on the word, I'm sorry. Um, good evening. Uh, I'm sorry it's so cold in here, but at least you won't fall asleep. Um, the legendary bullish film director Alan Parker once adapted Shaw's famous dictum about the academic profession, those who can do and those who can't teach. So far, so familiar, and to many in this room, no doubt, so annoying. But he went on, those who can't teach, teach gym, and those who can't teach gym, teach at film school. (laughs) I appreciate that Oxford is not a film school, though it has a more distinguished record than any film school for supplying the talent that has fueled the British film and television industries for almost a century on and off camera. Writers like Richard Curtis, who brought us Four Weddings and a Funeral, Love Actually, The Vicar of Dibley and Blackadder, or the full Monty and slumdog millionaire scribe Simon Beaufoy, directors of the diversity of Looking for Eric's Ken Loach and 24-hour party people's Michael Winterbottom. Writer-directors like Monty Python's Terry Jones and the thick of its Amanda Yanucci. Actors and performers ranging from Hugh Grant to Rowan Atkinson and broadcasting luminaries like the BBC's Director General Mark Thompson and News International's very own Rupert Murdoch. So Oxford's been a pretty efficient film and TV school without even trying. And perhaps that's Parker's point. Can what passes for creativity in film and TV ever really be taught? But here in my capacity as News International visiting professor of broadcast media, or if you prefer an acronym, NIVPOB, (laughs) the final M is silent, um, I may be even further down Parker's food chain. That said, I'm not here to teach. I'm not a teacher. I'm a visiting professor 
though the speed of my visit suggests that a more accurate title might be the just-passing-through professor of broadcast media. I'm in the entertainment business. My company, Kudos, as you've just heard, makes TV drama, series like Spooks, Hustle, Life on Mars, mini-series like Tsunami, Burn Up and Occupation, movies like David Cronenberg's Eastern Promises, and the Simon Beaufoy pen, Miss Pettigrew Lives for a Day. So I can only really aspire to do what I know best, what the TV drama does best, entertain you, stimulate you, make you laugh, make you cry. Well, I did say aspire, because when did you last cry in a lecture? Except out of boredom, of course. Um, Something else you might have experienced in a lecture is a list of credits. In TV and film, these are de rigueur, not least because our creations involve the work and energy of many, many talented individuals. Putting together this series of lectures hasn't been quite as complex as making a TV drama, and it's certainly been a lot cheaper. But there are a number of people I need to thank before setting off. Firstly, News International for sponsoring these lectures. Secondly, Professor Vincent Gillespie and his committee for asking me to be here. I was looking forward to seeing Vincent again, but I gather he's so horrified by what he might have unleashed that he's now 5,500 miles away at Berkeley. Uh, Next, my colleague Emma Haig, who has put enormous effort, time, and great good sense into effectively co-producing these lectures with me. And then the many colleagues, friends, collaborators, and co-conspirators who've patiently contributed insight, inspiration, embellishments, and argument. I cannot mention them all here, but they include Law & Order creator Dick Wolfe, 24's showrunner Evan Katz, uh, former X-Files showrunner and partner on a new venture of ours, Frank Spotnitz, traffic creator Simon Moore, who's here with us today, uh, FX's president of programming Nick Grad, AMC's Vlad Volinets, one of my predecessors in this post, Professor Anthony Lilly, my shine colleague Joanna Shield, digital visionary Edo Siegel, most of these people I'm just mentioning because I love their names, and in particular, all of my talented and extraordinary colleagues, partners, and friends at Kudos, without whose unique talents and Herculean efforts, in the face of seemingly impossible odds, I would not be here, and nor would Kudos. I can't mention them all, but here in the audience were to be my close colleague, Simon Crawford Collins, but because he's working extraordinarily hard, he isn't here, who produced both the first series of Spooks and Hustle, Daniel Isaacs, who is here, who puts together the Byzantine financial and legal constructions that underpin all our shows. Derek Wax, also here, who produced, among other things, Occupation, regarded by many, quite rightly, as one of the outstanding dramas of recent years. He's now working uh, on a show you'll all be looking forward to, a lesbian drama we're making for BBC Three called Lip Service. Look out for it. And Alison Barnett, our patient beyond imagining, head of physical production. Absent friends include our other supremely talented and singular in-house executive producers, Faith Penhill, Claire Parker, Karen Wilson, Alison Jackson, and Andrew Woodhead. But singular gratitude must be reserved for my quite brilliant partner, Kudos' creative director, Jane Featherston, from whom I've learned much both by experience, example, and osmosis. Over the coming few weeks, when I say we, it will not be a royal we. Instead, this is a real we, one that embraces all at Kudos, the writers, directors, and production teams on our shows, and most particularly Jane, without whom none of the Kudos shows would be what they are. I make no apology for this lengthy list. It's heartfelt. What I'm about to talk about could only be of value or meaning when a group of extraordinarily talented people come together to conspire to make something wonderful happen, and then work harder than anyone will ever know or properly appreciate. It's a kind of alchemy, an alchemy of people, bringing them together, mixing them with notions and possibilities, and watching the magic unfold. So before I begin, I appreciate that there might be some people here who have a life and who don't watch television and who therefore have absolutely no idea why I'm here. 
So here's a small taster of the magic Kudos has unleashed. My academic credentials, if you like. All very intellectual, as you can see. Um, we have, as you've just seen, made quite a wide range of dramas and comedies. All of it scripted, none of it documentary or reality, though some of it strongly rooted in rigorous research. But for the purposes of these four lectures, I'm going to focus on one form only, that of the long-running TV drama series, hour-long scripted pieces, designed to return week in, week out, in blocks of six or more episodes a year. In the US, there may be as many as 24 in a year. People by characters that audiences get to know and care about, sometimes even more than their loved ones. I'm going to ignore TV movies, short-run miniseries or serials, sitcoms and soaps. And the reason for this focus is simple. I believe the long-running TV drama series to be the great art form of the late 20th and early 21st century, right up there with the best of 19th century literature, and performing a commensurate role in the lives of their audiences, as the novels of Trollope, Dickens and Conan Doyle did with readers in their day. As many as 15 years ago, the American literary critic Charles McGraw was calling this form of television the primetime novel. Much more a writer's medium than the movies or mainstream theatre, which he felt were increasingly concerned with spectacle, McGraw argued that TV, with its unfolding epic stories installment by installment, its abundance of minutely observed details, and at its best, dialogue every bit as classy as that found in the finest novels, it has actually taken over some of the roles that book, books used to fill. He concluded, more than many novels, TV tells us how we live now. The drama series is also unique to television. It does something that other storytelling forms can't replicate. They create a world and a group of people that you get to know over time and keep coming back to. Like their rivals in other media, most TV drama series are pretty mediocre, some even execrable. I'm interested in the ones that stand out from the crowd, the iconoclasts, those that tattoo themselves on a moment in time to make a lasting cultural impression. Over the next four weeks, I want to explore what it is that distinguishes the great TV dramas from the merely good, how they happen, what these great stories and the nature of their heroes tell us about the world of which we're a part, how is our relationship with the audience changing, what is the impact of t on TV drama of an increasingly web-driven world, of reality shows structured like dramas, of the ratings dominance of so-called shiny floor shows, of shifting financial models, of the global competition for eyeballs. So not much to get through. Kudos is a creative business. Both of these words, creative and business, are critical. And the reason all this business stuff bubbles to the surface is that what we do is a weird kind of creativity. Being creative, as you know, takes many forms. A three-year-old is being creative, scribbling in a corner with a crayon on a piece of scrap paper. A poet, novelist, playwright, or composer doesn't need much more to create his or her masterpiece if that's what it's going to be. Some kind of narrative will emerge. You can publish a novel or even put on a play, relatively speaking, pretty cheaply. What we do in television drama is expensive, ridiculously, madly, inexplicably, and some might even say inexcusably expensive. Only movies and computer games trump us on price. But when you have a single episode of The Sopranos setting HBO back $10 million in its final season, there's not much between the two worlds. So we are, all of us, more than usually dependent on the kindness of deep-pocketed strangers and huge teams of people, which is why we cannot just be creative. I'm fascinated by how creativity happens in this strange group endeavor that the process of TV drama production shares with the movies, Dickens and Conan Doyle crafted alone to tell their stories, we are so not alone. 
In addition to writers, directors, producers, actors, editors, designers, directors of photography and computer graphics wizards, we make what we make in the company of more than 100 other technicians and craftspeople. Looking over our shoulder of financiers and broadcasters, our employers effectively, all of whom have a point of view and have paid millions, literally, for the right to impose it. It snows on us when we want sun. A snap train strike cuts a shooting day by hours. A diva won't leave her trailer because she's decided she's cold. The pound collapses, adding hundreds of thousands of pounds to an already impossible foreign shoot. A location is suddenly found to contain asbestos. A writer's dog is ill and a script is laid. I'd love to tell you I was making any of this up. How does any kind of creative vision survive all that? And how, if at all, can you plan for innovation, let alone guide or lead it when it comes? How do you allow for creative risk in all of this? Hitchcock famously said of the cumbersome and unwieldy process that is movie-making, before we begin, it's always perfect in my head. What follows, the writing, the shooting, the editing, and post-production, is damage limitation. As I mentioned earlier, we TV and film people are all like Hitchcock, part of a creative business. And from the outside, creativity can seem to be a somewhat mystical process, the preserve only of a certain kind of genius. But it is, of course, something that almost anyone is capable of, requiring, as it does, the fashioning of something new, ideally with some sort of purpose. It doesn't matter whether it's a piece of music, creative accounting, or a new piece of software. It doesn't have to win a prize to qualify. It's this ability to create that distinguishes us from other species. As the economist Paul Romer wrote, where people excel as economic animals is in their ability to produce ideas, not just physical goods. An ant will go through its life without ever coming up with even a slightly different idea about how to gather food. But people are almost incapable of this kind of rote adherence to instruction. We are incurable experimenters and problem solvers. Obviously, the visible creative manifestations of a TV broadcaster or a production company like Kudos are its programs. These need to surprise, challenge, enlighten, inspire, thrill, provoke, amuse, annoy, terrify, illuminate, provide an escape from quotidian routine, hold a mirror up to the soul, move and entertain. Sometimes, too, they need to educate. None of that is easy to do at all. Mediocrity is easy, but to be excellent, to make things of real creative value happen is incredibly difficult. It's also incredibly difficult, by the way, to make something really bad. There are too many systems in place to prevent the really bad, though ironically, these same disaster prevention mechanisms are also pretty effective at stifling the rather wonderful. They create a rock-like, risk-averse culture and we live with them every day. That said, they do happen, these extreme, some might say highly probable events. The question is, can they be made to happen, or are they, as the business guru Nassim Nicholas Taleb would call it, black swans, highly random, unusual, unpredictable, and above all, unplannable? Can you learn from successes and mistakes to make it more likely that great things will happen? Taleb calls this the turkey problem. How, he wonders, can we know the future given our knowledge of the past. What can a turkey learn about what is in store for it tomorrow from the events of yesterday? The same hand that feeds you can be the one that wrings your neck. Comforting thought. Uh, bearing that in mind, I will be talking about the future in three weeks' time. So, to get groundbreaking creativity to happen, it's probably fair to assume that it's not enough just to put a bunch of intelligent people together in a room or a building. Something else needs to happen. When Thomas Edison opened his lab in New Jersey, he called it an invention factory. I wish I'd thought of that. It's how I see kudos. 
If you scan the literature on creativity, some words and phrases crop up over and over again. Creativity involves breaking rules, being subversive, iconoclasm, and taking risks and having the confidence and self-respect so to do. It emerges from acts of rebellion or an environment in which mistakes are allowed and even encouraged. Creativity is really hard work. It takes patience, persistence, and sweat, if you like, and a lot of it. Ideally, too, there needs to be a right to fail, but it also needs a whole lot of luck, which is why I've called this talk, and it's evolved slightly from the talk I gave Sally, but you'll realize no meaningful difference, how to grow a creative business by accident rather than according to the laws of chance, though I guess it's the same thing. It's the tale of how Kudos came to be the UK's leading independent purveyor of quality drama, and I hope it doesn't come across as vainglorious. It's not meant to be but instead throws up, throws up some thoughts about how creativity happens and how it can be nurtured. It will also set out a stall for many of the ideas that I'll expand upon over the coming few weeks. Like many of my generation, I grew up on war stories, tales of incredible bravery in the face of insuperable odds that were usually rewarded with medals and acclaim, albeit posthumously. These were tales of men, mainly, risking all for some higher purpose. And when I was small, this behavior seemed really admirable, but as I grew older, the idea of hurling yourself out of a safe trench into a barrage of gunfire, even in a fight against very bad people, struck me not as heroic, but, well, just stupid. Did these people really have any idea what they were doing? I began to believe not. And if they did, then they clearly weren't stupid, just mad. You may wonder what all this has to do with TV or the growth of a successful independent production company. A kind historian looking at the corporate evolution of Kudos and as those of you who are classical scholars will know, kudos is the ancient Greek word for praise or glory, might couch it in terms of one great risk taken after another, each one consciously and strategically designed to get us to where we are now. But a less kind historian might characterize things more as a succession of moves best described as naive, but more accurately foolish or underinformed, that looked brave to the outside world, but which could only have been taken by a small group of people albeit passionate, immensely talented, and exceptionally hard-working people who had no idea what risks they were running, making as they did one decision after another based not so much on experience as on luck and instinct. I side with the latter historian, hence the title of this talk, and I should know I was there. I led this potentially suicidal charge, and I'd love to tell you I knew precisely what I was doing or why. I didn't. I just wanted to make great drama, so I fashioned a space and gathered together the highly gifted people who seem most likely to enable me to do that. This is what I meant when I talked about being an alchemist of people, and it's just about as scientific. Last year, Kudos made 46 hours of drama. You've heard about a lot of it from Sally. This year, it would be, if all goes well, closer to 66. We had one feature film out on release last year, and we have another, a remake of Brighton Rock, starring Helen Mirren and Control's electrifying Sam Riley in production. In 2003... We were named by the Financial Times as one of the top 50 most creative businesses in Britain. In 2007 and 2008, we were voted Best Independent Production Company by our peers, not last year, because somewhat stupidly, if honestly, I cast my vote for the company that beat us by one vote. <laughs> Won't do that again. Uh, just over three years ago, we were bought by Liz Murdoch's Shine, and are now part of a dynamic and rapidly expanding global group, whose other programs around the world include Merlin, MasterChef, the biggest loser in Ugly Betty. And last month, the Daily Mail published a list of what, in their view, were the 10 best TV shows in any genre of the 21st century's first decade on either side of the Atlantic. You'll be pleased, I'm sure, to discover 
that the list was topped by Simon Cowell's X Factor and Britain's Got Talent. Lost and The Wire, both of which I'll be discussing in future lectures, were three and four respectively. Two of our shows, though, found their way into the rest of the top ten. Spooks at number five and Life on Mars at number nine. I'm a big, big fan of the Daily Mail. I know it's the wrong thing to say at a News International lecture, and I won't say it again. Um, I'm not alone in thinking that we created a black swan or two. It wasn't always like this. I set Kudos up in 1992, and then there were just two of us and a very old dog. By 2000, it was still a break-even business, just, and I wasn't paying myself that much more than I'd been earning back in the early 90s as a commissioning editor at Channel 4. We'd won a British Academy Award, a BAFTA, for an entertainment show we'd made in 93, a Royal Television Society Award for Psychos, a hard-hitting serial about a psychiatric hospital, and an international Emmy for a BBC family drama called The Magician's House. But just as medals and no real compensation for dead soldiers, prizes were no substitute for commercial viability. As the song goes, you're loving, don't pay my bills. We've come close to getting out of business on at least two occasions. The first time, when despairing of the seeming impossibility of making independent production viable as a business, I took my eye well off the ball and spent three years trying to get a youth cable channel off the ground. My heart was never in it. Rapture, it was called, and I think it still exists somewhere in the multi-channel jungle, was the only project I've ever embarked on with a purely financial objective. First lesson... Creative business can never be cynically just about the money. The second time Kudos and I came close to apocalypse was when I financed the pre-production of Among Giants, our first feature film, also one based on a Simon Beaufoy script, on the Kudos Company American Express card. Although everything was in principle agreed, I had no signed contracts, no money, and I was, among other things, setting up a production office in Sheffield, hiring expensive crew, and flying actress Rachel Griffiths first class in from Australia. Rachel, as many of you will know, is now most renowned for her role as the gloriously complex Brenda in Six Feet Under, a series I'll be exploring in some detail next week. Anyway, I saw my life flash before me. I thought everything would come crashing down, house, company, and family. I've never endured a more stressful three months. What on earth was I thinking? Lesson two, as Winston Churchill put it, play the game for more than you can afford to lose. Only then will you learn the game. And so as the new century dawned, Full of optimism and excitement, Kudos and I were in a quite different mood. We had no commissions, not one. Money was pouring out, nothing was even dribbling in. So, what turned things around? What inspired active leadership on my or anyone else's part made all the difference? Well, here's what happened. Crudely, spooks happened. It had started in 1997. Our Channel 4 prize-winning serial Psychos was not recommissioned. Critics had loved it, but audiences ran for the hills. Lesson three... Dramas about mad people are a ratings disaster. Curiously, an identically themed show called Wonderland, which ran in the US at almost exactly the same time, was pulled after only three episodes. Trust me, this arena of psychic darkness is not popular subject matter. Anyway, Channel 4 liked what we'd done and asked us to come up with a precinct-based series idea for them. And just as I was rubbing my hands at the ease of the task, there was a qualification from them. We do want a precinct-based drama, but we don't want one set either in a police station or in a hospital. In keeping with their remit, Channel 4 were looking for something risky, something brave, bold, and original. No problem, I thought, having never considered for a second what a precinct-based drama was or why most of them were set in police stations or hospitals. Did I say most? As I began my research, I quickly discovered that all precinct dramas were set in cop or doc shops, as they're known. Why? 
because life or death jeopardy wanders in through their doors 24-7. So, as I explored a tragically bereft range of alternative scenarios, it became abundantly clear that a series set in a veterinary practice, a shopping mall, a hotel or a cruise ship wasn't going to do it for me or the channel. Increasingly desperate, I stumbled into a local bookshop, curious as to whether novelists had chanced upon something that TV had missed. I flirted with sci-fi in general, and spaceships in particular, before finding myself irresistibly drawn to the John le Carré section. What about MI5, the British Secret Service? They're a bit like the police, aren't they? But more so. As I mulled the idea further, I became increasingly excited. One of the ingredients that hooked me was the notion of a group of people who had to lie for a living and then had to go home and lie to their nearest and dearest. In other words, a group of people whose whole existent, existence, unlike docs and cops, was based on duplicity and deception. Rich possibilities for dramatic and emotional conflict, I felt, not to mention the fact that we Brits have a disturbing talent for secrets and lies. And so I dubbed the idea spooks, the term that Le Carre had invented for the ghost-like members of the security services that is now routinely used even by the spies themselves, and pitched a one-line idea to Channel 4. The channel were thrilled. We went straight into a fast-track development, researched the idea, brought in Psycho's writer David Wollstonecraft, and waited for the green light. The phone call came during Kudos's annual Christmas lunch at the end of 1998. The light wasn't green, and it wasn't even amber. It was red. They had decided to go for a series about lawyers instead. Brave, bold, original, happy Christmas to you too, Channel 4. I wanted to shoot myself. Lesson four, don't listen to broadcasters when they say what they want, and in particular don't listen to broadcasters when they say they want to take risks. They usually don't mean it. Suffice it to say, we spent much of 99 pitching spooks to the two remaining broadcasters, BBC and ITV. Both turned it down. Memorably, and bear in mind this was all before 9-11, ITV gave us a reason for rejection, and I quote, spies? My dear boy, I mean, who's interested in spies? What do they do? And after the collapse of the Cold War, who's the enemy? There isn't one. Well, we'd anticipated that. After all, if you're trying to set up a brand new series, you want to make sure there are a lot of storylines at your disposal. So we'd researched enemies and found at least 100. In fact, halfway down our list, and I've still got it, was someone called Osama bin Laden. Perhaps you've heard of him. He may not have been on the CIA's list, but he sure as hell was on ours. He had as you know, tried to blow up the World Trade Center back in the early 90s. So there we were. The end of the century, a great idea, at least I thought it was, rejected by everyone, a staff of 10 and nowhere else to go. Spooks's problem was that there were no paradigms. There hadn't been a spy series on TV anywhere for more than a couple of decades. Therefore, went the Alice in Wonderland logic. They didn't work and audiences didn't want them. We'd just come out of the 90s where the gritty TV firmament had been uh, dominated by cop shows. Inspector Morse, okay, not so gritty. Between the Lines, Cracker, and Prime Suspect. And as for those series that had been successful outside the police station, well, they tended towards the soft. Jeeves and Worcester with Messrs. Fry and Laurie, Alan Davis's magician-come-private-eye Jonathan Creek, and the Darling Buds of May, which gave us the Darling Catherine Zeta-Jones. Not a hint of a spook to be seen. Economic ruin imminent. The sensible thing might have been to give up. It was certainly tempting. The legendarily aggressive movie executive founder, sorry, Miramax founder Harvey Weinstein tried to buy Kudos at around this time, but at such a knockdown price that possible bankruptcy seemed preferable. And it was around this time, too, that my accountant pointed out to me that in eight years of Kudos's life, I'd made more money out of the family home simply accruing value by sitting there. 
Had I perhaps considered property as an alternative career? If you've met my accountant, you'll know he was serious. Uh, Not knowing any better, and like almost all my fellow independent producers, I've no business training. I set Kudos up just because I wanted to make drama, and genuinely not to make money. I then brought in a brilliant young producer called Jane Featherstone to be Kudos' head of drama. Hitting targets faster than my lawyer could write them into a contract, she's now my partner and has been almost since she arrived in the middle of 2000. Her arrival coincided with what the former President Bush might have characterised as regime change at the BBC, a new team both in the drama department and at BBC One. I took Jane in to meet them and we re-pitched Spooks. They were looking for a big, high-concept series for prime time and asked us to reinvent completely the Edgier Channel 4 idea for a mainstream channel. It is impossible to convey to you the blood, sweat and tears that this process entailed. Jane Featherston, who drove it, remembers it as 37 drafts of hell, so beating Dante by a number of stages. The graft paid off. By the middle of 2001, a wholly reimagined spooks had been greenlit by BBC One. And by September, early September 2001, we're in pre-production on a six-part series. Lesson five, as it says in the I Ching, patience is rewarded. The great thing about TV is that eventually, people who say no to great ideas lose their jobs. Sometimes, if you're really passionate about an idea, you just have to wait for the naysayers to go away or die. (laughs) That said, although our dogged refusal to give up on spooks was commercially risky for us, it's easy, easy with hindsight to forget that it was for all concerns an extraordinarily risky proposition. We took risks with it, but so did the executives at the BBC who championed it. There were literally no precedents for it on British TV. It was exceptionally bold commissioning. And that's what it means to be a creative executive. So there we were, making a pre-9-11 spy show when the world changed, and our scripts had to be changed very quickly. Spies, having been invisible since the Berlin Wall came down, were now in a post-Twin Towers universe in the headlines every day. And if there had been any doubts about the availability of an enemy, of infinite story possibilities, in other words, there were no doubts now. Jane and I were united in our fandom of the best U.S. dramas, their pace, their verve, the quality of writing and acting. But even with a stunning opening script, it was a struggle finding a director to interpret this vision. Jane had met about 40 and was close to giving up when a man called Barrett Nalori, just back from a sojourn in the States, wandered into her office. Barrett had made a low-budget movie thriller called Downtime, and there was something about the edgy tension underpinning it that suggested a unique talent. Interestingly, too, Barrett had never worked in TV, and so was untainted by anything so mundane as how you were supposed to do things. He turned out to be something of a genius and ended up directing the opening episodes of, and therefore creating the look for, Hustle and Life on Mars as well. When Spooks launched, it was held by press and public alike, as combining the best of British TV with the best of the US. Through Barrett's lens, it was cinematic, fast, visceral. But we then went one better. I'm going to show you now an extract from our second episode. It's strong stuff, and if you don't like violence, don't watch. Really, don't watch. Uh, But here, two members of the core Spooks team, established in the opening episode, have been captured by the racist leader at the heart of a plot to destabilise inner cities across the UK. Uh, Yes, in the second episode of a brand new series, we killed one of our leads. In fact, not just one of our leads, but Lisa Faulkner, the actress you saw earlier, Boiled, uh, was our highest profile lead actor, the one who, by virtue of being an ex-soap star, was the one most written about by journalists when Spooks launched. And as you saw, we didn't just kill her routinely, but horribly, violently, and above all, memorably. What had annoyed us about series drama was that however well-crafted, 
an audience never really believed that a protagonist was in danger. You don't have to be a terribly sophisticated viewer to know that seriously it has to stick around. They can't get killed. They come back next week, don't they? They have to. As a consequence of that, for Spook's viewers, everything was different from the get-go. Danger meant danger, and we've traded off it ever since and gone on killing our leads. That said, like many great moments, it wasn't quite planned that way. At the start of production, sorry, as the start of production loomed ever closer, the episode two that had originally been planned wasn't working. So Jane pulled forward the only storyline in existence that was remotely strong, as it happened an outline for an episode 13 of what became a six-part series, and sped that into a fully-fledged script. It was only then that decision was taken to seed Lisa's character back into the first episode, so setting up the misdirection for the audience that as a leading member of the team, she could not die, which is why it was so very shocking when she did. It had started as an accident, but it took a very clever producer to seize the opportunity to conjure from it a game-changing moment in television drama. Lesson six, and this is very much the theme of next week's lecture, where I'll be focusing on some of the best of the past decade's TV drama from the other side of the Atlantic. Rules are there to be broken. Confound audience expectations and don't do what everyone has done before. And then at least if you fail, it's a glorious failure. So much TV fails because it's tried to second-guess the audience and all too often mediocrity is the result. Creativity doesn't happen on a top-down basis. It cannot be tinkered with or engineered. It's far more likely to emerge from bold experimentation, and this is the place where luck happens. Not from a place where the likelihood of failure is so eroded that the chances of success are hobbled from the get-go. It's worth saying, too, though it didn't feel like it at the time, that Channel 4 and ITV did us huge favours by turning spooks down when they did. This was another of the accidents that I referred to earlier. I'm certain that although Spooks was conceived as a pre-9-11 show, it only enjoyed the spectacular success it did because it touched a post-9-11 nerve. And Spooks continued to anticipate the zeitgeist. Yes, we were well-researched, well-and-deniably sourced, and read the papers, but luck played a huge part too in the fact that series after series, show after show, Spooks' stories about torture, extraordinary rendition, Racial, te- racial tension in the inner cities, financial crises, and many other ideas of the moment appeared in our fictions just ahead of the news. Uniting all of this was a set of heroes designed for a new world order, perhaps better characterized as a lack of order. The moral certainties that had seemed clearly defined post-World War II and well into the Cold War were suddenly, come the new century, muddy, murky, and ambiguous. Who were the bad guys, really? And even if we knew who the bad guys were, Maybe there was just a smidgen of their cause that had some basis in reality. In this morally ambiguous universe, heroes cannot behave as they once did. As happens sometimes in spooks, our protagonists, good people in the eyes of the audience, do bad things, very bad things. Are they heroes or anti-heroes? In two weeks' time, the emergence of a 21st century anti-hero will be my theme. A recent article described about Kudos described it as the house that spooks built. This is to some extent true. It provided a creative and commercial foundation from which all else followed. Above all, it formed the building blocks for a creative team at Kudos that remains with us today. A hard core of us have been together for nearly a decade. We've grown a shared culture in which all are invested in the success of what we make. Lesson seven, and forgive me if this sounds a little gnomic, but Robert Louis Stevenson expressed it perfectly when he said, don't judge each day by the harvest you reap, but by the seeds that you plant. Spook Series 8 climaxed just before Christmas. Series 9 is now in pre-production. Our next hit series for the BBC, Hustle, 
about a gang of high-end con men came out of a brief chat in the back of a cab between James Featherstone and Spook's director, Barrett Nalori. The idea was never written down, but verbally pitched, one of our favourite writers attached, and it was on air 18 months later. Hustle would never have happened had it not been for the success of Spooks. There had been no series about con men, so it couldn't work, could it? No broadcaster had declared a desire for a con show, which meant it was not what anyone was looking for. Like Spooks, Hustle was high-octane, but unlike Spooks, it held two fingers up to the weary, soap-like naturalism that had dogged so much British TV for decades. With its ironic, postmodern nods, winks and asides to the audience, its freeze-frame expositions and writer Tony Jordan's gleeful wrong-footing of the audience, it was like nothing else on television. Lesson eight, if nothing else, at least be different. Here's a clip from the first episode in which our gang reel in their mark as the victim of a con is known. There is a case for the proposition that Hustle resonated with audiences both in the UK and internationally, because once again, accidentally, it hit the morally ambiguous zeitgeist. This is not why it was conceived, but you could argue this is the age of the con man as hero. Our leaders lie to us, and yet we go on voting for them. As they said in the clip, you can't con an honest man. We're conned every election year, so what does that make us? To some extent, too, Hustle is a metaphor for the relationship between the storyteller, con man, and audience, the mark. In most TV drama, this is a very straightforward relationship, one in which, unlike most marks, the audience is entirely complicit. They willingly enter the web being spun by the storyteller and are happy to follow the narrative as it unfolds. The storyteller's tricks of the trade, the writerly equivalents of sleight of hand, the generating of suspense, mystery, and surprise are governed by the fundamental convention that you can do anything, but you can, under no circumstances, lie to your audience. The camera provides a godlike omniscience, a silent third-person narrator that is above all else reliable. It creates the illusion, as it's supposed to do, of an objectively observed reality. It is, needless to say, all a seductive trick. It's the most mediated, manipulative, and contrived of all experiences. Spooks functions in this way. For sure, characters frequently behave with staggering, even bewildering duplicity within this framework, but the storytelling is always honest. Hustle does something quite unusual for TV drama. Like the Marks, we, the audience, are not so much seduced as actively and willingly conned. Crucial information is routinely withheld, and this renders the narration unreliable. But it is at least what the literary critic James Wood classes as reliably unreliable. While the rest of television is poker-faced, detached, and objective, Hustle's narrative tone is ironic, and while almost all TV dramas at pains to lull you into forgetting that you're watching television, Hustle's characters address us directly. Brecht would have been proud. His approach has never been invoked to such populist effect. This is at the heart of what makes Hustle such an unusual piece of television entertainment. But there was another accident at play in Hustle's success. Those of you as old or even older than me will have noticed Robert Vaughan as one of our regulars. And if, like me, you grew up with the man from Uncle, you might understand how childishly thrilling it was to lure him into the show. He was our first choice. But bizarrely, the BBC vetoed him, claiming that British audiences didn't like American actors in, quote, their shows. Then, two days before principal photography began, his replacement failed a medical, and there was no time left for the BBC to object to our original first choice coming back as a late substitute. Robert was the only name in the show, we attracted a mountain of press when Hustle launched, 95% of it about the man from UNCLE coming back to the BBC. 
Without the particular oxygen of that publicity opportunity, Hustle might easily have come and gone without anyone noticing. It didn't, though. And Series 6 of Hustle is currently on air. Uh, by the way, two more episodes to go of the current season, Monday nights, BBC One, 9 o'clock. Uh, you won't miss this. We're also developing a Hustle movie for Fox. I spoke earlier of the happy accident of Spook's history of rejection. Well, that happy accident played an even larger part in the history of Life on Mars, our most recent primetime BBC series. Life on Mars launched in 2006, four years ago. With season three of its successor, Ashes to Ashes, about to launch, Life on Mars lives on. But it had started back in 1997, when I persuaded the BBC to give kudos some money for Tony Jordan and a couple of fellow writers, Matthew Graham and Ashley Farrow, who'd all worked together on EastEnders, to spend a week brainstorming some new drama notions for BBC One. The sensible place to do this would have been a conference room in a nondescript motel just off the M25. But sensible and creative stimulus do not inhabit the same universe, nor for that matter, and I say this in a loving way, do sensible and Tony Jordan. He insisted on Blackpool and the bounteous distractions of its off-season seafront. I joined them halfway through their week of amusement arcades and soggy chips to find etched on their white board the immortal words, Suck Carrots in Hell. For a moment, I feared this might be the sum total of three days' creative brainstorming. It turned out to be a characteristically mischievous logline for an idea about a man who sells his soul to the devil to save his daughter's life. But they'd also come up with Life on Mars. Life on Mars was always a mad idea. A cop from the present day is a car accident, another important accident in Kudos' history. And when he comes round, he finds himself in 1972. Is he dead? Is he mad? Is he on drugs? Is he in a coma? Has he really travelled back in time? Who knows? So it may be no surprise to discover that it took us seven years to get that idea greenlit. On Life on Mars, our original contracts with the creators go back to 1998. Every broadcaster said no, then said no again, and in some cases, no once more. But after the success of Spooks and Hustle, a couple of BBC executives had, in terms of their own careers, another somewhat risky thought. Well, this notion is insane, but maybe Kudos can pull it off. Lesson nine, this goes well beyond patience. Passion is rewarded. As Margaret Bowden writes in The Creative Mind, creativity involves not only a passionate self-interest, but self-confidence too. A person needs a healthy self-respect to pursue novel ideas and to make mistakes, despite criticism from others. Self-doubt there may be, but it cannot always win the day. Breaking generally accepted rules or even stretching them takes confidence. Continuing to do so in the face of scepticism and scorn takes even more. On Life on Mars, seven years of scepticism and scorn. And while on the subject of scepticism and scorn, that suck-carrots-in-hell idea... 13 years after first being pitched, is now finally in development at the BBC. So, we've learned to be very committed to our ideas, to be so tenacious that the truly great creative notions will not die, but find their right time, place and supporters. Here's a scene shortly after Sam's accident, where he wanders, this is from Life on Mars, where he wanders into his old precinct, somewhat confused, and has yet to meet Gene Hunt. Uh, Life on Mars has been a huge critical and rating success. It's captured the imagination of audiences in the strangest of ways. Like its successor, Ashes to Ashes, Life on Mars works on a number of different levels. One of its blackly comedic charms, undoubtedly, is the prism of hindsight it provides through which we gaze at new at what we have become. The computers and mobile phones of Sam's 21st century world 
represent a severing of any connection we might once have had with the instincts and physicality so viscerally embodied by the 1970s creature that is Gene Hunt. What also resonates with audiences, perhaps uncomfortably, is that we live in a world where we can't catch criminals if we play by the rules. In fact, the rules governing our behavior don't work across the board, whether on a personal or political level. Politicians tell us that we're helpless without them, but the experience of ordinary people, the day-to-day injustices, great and small, that dog our lives, lead us to feel that we're helpless with them. Democracy gives us an increasingly scant illusion of control over our destinies. Gene Hunt, a man for whom rules were made to be abused before being broken, is a different shade of the new anti-hero I alluded to in Spooks, one perfectly primed to explode into the moral vacuum in which he finds himself. He's all the more insidious by virtue of being very funny, and he's partly funny because his religion is political incorrectness, which I think is another of the great reasons for Life on Mars' success. It's staggering and riotously liberating political incorrectness. Political correctness has given us a kind of sense of humor bypass and has all but killed the sitcom on both sides of the Atlantic. It's no surprise that Larry David's inspired anti-hero should have risen above the pack in Kerber enthusiasm. But the long-delayed life on Mars hit a public exasperated by what they could no longer say or do, or even think in public, and ready to enjoy once more the wicked pleasures of what used to be. So in addition to shooting first and asking questions later, drinking alcohol from breakfast onwards and smoking in offices, the characters make jokes about women, gays, and ethnic minorities. It's offensive, of course, But the defense for writers, actors, and producers is that we're really very sorry, but it's all in the service of authenticity. Life on Mars is, of course, also just a great cop show. There's a terrific love-hate relationship at the heart of it. It's funny, and it has its water-cooler debating point each week as to what's really happened to our 21st century protagonist. But if Hustle played games with unreliable storytelling, Life on Mars took things further still. Sam is our narrator. We're inside his head, He's in his own story, one possibly entirely of his own making. And we, like him, don't know what his status is. Mad, on drugs, in a coma, dead, really travelled back in time. This makes him, as James Woods has it, unreliably unreliable. We sympathise with him and we understand there's no malicious intent on his part. But he's wholly untrustworthy. And while there may be many precedents for this in literature, most famously in Knut Hampson's Hunger or Faulkner's As I Lay Dying, There's no precedent for this in television drama series, certainly none that connected so emphatically with huge primetime audiences. Spooks or hustles, varying degrees of economy with the truth, is one thing, but the opportunity in Life on Mars for narrative dishonesty, one that minute by minute is in danger of breaking the bond of trust with the audience, is huge. But when it works, as it undeniably did with Life on Mars, a beguiling narrative ambiguity opens up, so allowing each audience member to come to their own interpretation as to what might be going on. As I'll be discussing in more detail over the coming weeks, those stories that tell us everything, that leave no room for an alternative interpretation as they they unfold, will never be as satisfying as those that intrigue or set up a puzzle through a judicious withholding of information. But withhold too much, set up mysteries that are never able to be resolved, and you have the televisual equivalent of the The old adage that 99% of pleasure is anticipation only holds good if that anticipation delivers. The status of the narrator was, though, merely a symptom of what made Life on Mars so unusual in the British television landscape. Even more than hustle before it, this series was a radical departure from the soapy, naturalistic drama traditions of UK TV. The last Manchester-based drama had been clocking off, set in a factory, which had an almost documentary realism about it. 
the last distinctive cop series have been Tony Garnett's cops, similarly rooted in gritty truth. Once again, there was no primetime precedent for this breakout series and its triumphant parting of the ways with naturalism from the get-go. Because when you abandon naturalism, the conventional rules of storytelling go out the window. Anything can happen. There's a built-in ambiguity in the imagined worlds, a natural mystery, and it doesn't necessarily make for comfortable viewing. But it does have to make sense in terms of its own logic. Would Life on Mars have been as successful if it had been commissioned when we first pitched it? I doubt it. Life on Mars found its time. Lesson 10, sometimes even failure and rejection can be your friend. And now, because of the secondary accident of one of our leads not wanting to continue, Life on Mars ended after only two series, so enhancing a cult status that further series may only have diminished. The third and final season of the follow-up series Ashes to Ashes is about to air. And for those of you who've not seen it, here the mercifully unreconstructed and unrepentant Gene Holt, now older but certainly not wiser, and relocated to London in 1983, is joined by a female cop from the present day, confusingly being played by one of the former regulars from Spooks, though not the one you saw boiled alive earlier. In talking about growing a creative business by accident, I'm only semi-serious. As I hope I've demonstrated, much that happens is lucky, but I fervently believe that if you can't necessarily make your own luck, and this is lesson 11, at least make for yourself a place where luck can happen and put yourself there. The place where luck happens, where great TV series are sculpted, is a place where first and foremost, a team of exceptionally brilliant people have been brought together, and then they have to work frighteningly hard with passion, intensity, and ruthless attention to detail in order to have even the faintest chance of breaking the mold. Luck alone is just an ingredient, sometimes a catalyst, but accidents without that oh-so-precious human component is, well, just that, an accident. It's in this equation that the group of people Jane and I value above all others are writers. As they say, failure is an orphan, success has many parents. But without our writers, we have nothing. Their inspiration, their imagination, their madness and their accidents are what make all this possible. As the journalist Red Smith once said, there's nothing to writing. All you do is sit down at a typewriter and open a vein. I want to show you one more moment from Life on Mars that illustrates just how brilliant these people are. Sam, our cop from today, is standing on a rooftop in 1972, having been persuaded by a psychiatrist whom he believes to be a voice from the present day, that by killing himself, he can return to the present. In a way, the writer Matthew Graham is paying tribute to his own cleverness with that exchange about the sand, but who can blame him? What a fabulous piece of writing. I know this talk was titled How to Grow a Creative Business by Accident. The business bit is an accident, the creativity not. As I've endeavoured to explain... Kudos is peopled by a team of people who love what they do, passionately. These shows are now just a part of what we make. And in addition to these guerrilla returning series, we've made over the past years a Roma Fiction Prize-winning thriller about climate change, a gut-wrenching drama about the aftermath of the 2004 tsunami, a harrowing TV movie about a paedophile, and the recent pre-Europa Prize-winning occupation three-part for BBC One. None of these pieces, commercial or ratings-grabbing, we just wanted to make them. The finale of the first ever episode of Hustle summed things up nicely. When they said it's not only about the money, that's lesson one reprised. Kudos is a place Jane and I have built where the right kind of accidents happen most of the time. Not everything we do works, of course. Could it be better calibrated to commercial success? Perhaps. But keeping a creative spirit at the forefront of a creative organization is absolutely critical. 
It's also tough and can often seem scary. Richard Florida writes in his influential bestseller, The Rise of the Creative Class, the creative ethos marks a strong departure from the conformist ethos of the past. Creative work is in fact often downright subversive since it disrupts existing existing patterns of thought and life. And he goes on to quote the economic historian Joel Mocker who said, continued outpouring of creativity cannot and should not be taken for granted. Sustaining it over long periods is not automatic, but requires constant attention. Creativity, he concludes, is an act of rebellion. Rebellion, actively encouraged at a broadcaster, there's a thought. But at the very least, that constant attention means for all creative organizations, kudos, our fellow producers and broadcasters too, being places where individual passions can be indulged, where it's not all about the ratings, where it's not all about perpetuating or growing the organization for its own sake. Think of this perhaps as better recipes, not more food. Where it's not all about the money or lack thereof, where only the very best ideas are made, where more risks are encouraged, celebrated even, and where there is, above all, a right to fail. Failure is, of course, the wrong kind of accident, so we naturally devote much effort to not failing. I'm going to end this talk with the final moments of the first series of spooks, our attempt to ensure the BBC commissioned a second series, and my attempt to ensure that you come back next week.